Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. This is your host, Dr. Dion. Thanks for checking out this episode of Refine Your Health. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on your streaming platform of choice. Now, let's jump into this episode. COVID-19 has brought on a complex array of factors that have impacted our mental health. I've talked about that impact on adults in one of my previous episodes titled Your Mental Health in the Midst of a Pandemic. So please listen to that podcast interview as well when you have the chance. However, I want to focus on the mental health of children during this episode because I feel as adults, sometimes we become so distracted by our day-to-day, which has become even more complicated by the stress of a global pandemic. As a result, many parents or adults in general may not recognize the impact this pandemic has been having on our children's mental health in the United States. Therefore, I have two awesome guests joining me for this episode to discuss this very important topic. One of my guests is Dr. Katran Penn. Dr. Penn earned her PhD in school psychology from the University of California, Berkeley, and is a proud graduate of Hampton University. Her studies and research focus on the achievement of African-American students and the influence of parental involvement on student achievement. She's a recipient of the American Psychology Association's Minority Fellowship Award and UC Berkeley's Graduate Opportunity Fellowship. Also, she's a fellow of the Impact Center Women's Leadership Institute. After graduate school, she worked as a school psychologist in California and North Carolina. Later, she transitioned into various district leadership roles. Currently, Dr. Penn is the executive director of student wellness and academic support for the 17th largest school district in the nation. This district serves 142,000 students who attend 176 schools. In this role, she leads a host of programs that address the social, emotional, academic, and general wellness needs of students. Amongst those programs are school counseling, social work, and psychology, as well as school-based mental health programs. The department has been focused on increasing student access to social and emotional support. That work will continue with greater intensity in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And my other wonderful guest that's joining us for this podcast episode is Miss Amanda Jones. Miss Jones has a bachelor's degree in psychology and religious studies from the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. In addition, she went on to, she went on to complete her master's in counseling from there as well. In the past, Miss Jones has worked as the youth director at Prospect United Methodist Church in Monroe, North Carolina. Currently, Miss Amanda Jones is a school counselor at one of the middle schools in the same school district that Dr. Penn oversees which is one of the top 20 largest school districts in the nation. Her personal and professional goals include helping others find inner strength, mental peace, as well as leading her community towards equality, love, and respect for all people. I am so excited to have you ladies on the episode. And I hope that by having you on this episode and to interview you all, that you can shed some light on the general mental health of our children in this nation and how this global pandemic has impacted them. So welcome, Dr. Penn, as well as Miss Amanda Jones. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So with that being said, let's just get right to our interview. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to discuss this important topic regarding our children, especially during this time of a pandemic. 
And so I wanted to kind of just talk about just COVID-19 has brought about a complex array of factors that I mentioned earlier, such as uncertainty, social isolation, and parental angst that has impacted the mental health of our kids and adolescents, basically. And the National Council and Institute of Medicine reported that it was estimated back in 2007 that up to one in five children experience a mental health disorder in a given year. So with that being said, I want to kind of start off with you, Dr. Penn. And so what does it mean to be mentally healthy during childhood? What it means to be mentally healthy during childhood is that a young person is able to engage in and participate in the normal daily activities of childhood without experiencing any significant degree of emotional or behavioral distress. And so a healthy child is one who is able to develop and maintain friendships, one who is able to engage effectively in school, which is the job of children, right? When we Mm -hmm. think about healthy adults, a healthy adult is one who is able to work and be productive. Working being one of the key um, objectives of of daily living. And so for a child, school is their work, if you will, as Mm -hmm. is play. And so a child who cannot um, successfully engage in learning or successfully engage in play and peer activities is one who we might consider to be unwell from a psychological standpoint. Okay. So Ms. Jones, you are a school counselor and you are, I consider you boots on the ground basically. And from your standpoint, what are some characteristics that you look for in saying, okay, a child as far as especially being in middle school, they're transitioning from that point of being dependent on their parents and kind of coming into their own personal identity. What do you consider for them as being considered like mentally healthy? What characteristics do you look for? So similar to what Dr. Penn already said, you know, we're really looking for an average level of function both academically and then personally and socially. And so you know, there'll be blips along that way. Students Mm -hmm. come across challenges, perhaps the loss of a loved one or um, a move from one area to another and having to make new friends. But generally, we want to see students cope with that in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Um, They may be upset. They may cry. They may get angry. None of that means that they're unwell. But as Dr. Penn said, if it becomes prolonged to a point where they can't participate academically for an extended period of time, or perhaps they're isolating themselves from friends and family, those would all be indicators that they may need some intervention and support. So Dr. Penn, what are some of the common childhood mental health disorders that you encounter? And can you explain what each of those are? I know there may be like a like categories, but can you go into detail about some, you know, common childhood mental health disorders? Yes, absolutely. And I'm happy to start. And Amanda, I bet you will jump in with um, some that you see consistently in your school environment. Probably the most common diagnosis that we see in school-aged children is ADHD. Okay. Regardless of the type, you know, there's an attentive type, mixed type, um, hyperactive type, but ADHD is definitely the most prevalent um, diagnosis 
followed by probably uh, anxiety disorders, mm-hmm. full range of anxiety disorders. There's lots, but generalized anxiety disorders is probably the next one that we see. After that, we see a lot of um, depression, especially as we get into our older children, um, mm-hmm. particularly in the middle grades and high school, uh, we see depression. I would add in there oppositional defiance disorder is another that we see a lot in our younger children. And then as they progress into the high school years, um, some students may receive a diagnosis of conduct disorder. So those are those are definitely the most common ones. But I wonder, Amanda, do you see others regularly as well? Um, I couldn't agree more. That's the, the exact order. Those the anxiety and ADHD are definitely the, the top two that we see at our school as far as impacting students in the school level. You know, ADHD is interesting to me because if you're not in a school setting, a lot of times students are very successful. It's not pointed at. It's not considered a disability. But in a school setting where we're expecting students to focus for a long period of time, ADHD hinders that. And so it does become something that gets in the way of them being successful in school. So can you kind of explain, Dr. Pan, what is ADHD versus anxiety versus depression? Sure. So when we're talking about ADHD, as I mentioned before, there's a number of different forms of ADHD. Mm -hmm. But in a general sense, it it of course stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so children with ADHD have difficulty maintaining sustained attention to tasks and activities. And it also can present as children who are overly active given the demands of the situation. I would add, you know, we hear a lot of parents say, well, I don't think he has ADHD. He can play video games for hours on end. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Video games are very active and there's constant change happening. And so Mm -hmm. although playing a video game requires, can require hours of time sitting and maybe not moving from a cognitive or neurological standpoint, there's a lot of change in what you're attending to constantly while playing a video game. And so a child who is hyperactive and quote unquote, can't sit down, can sit and play a video game for hours because it is actually, they're constantly switching what they're attending to while they're playing a video game. And so again, maybe the child who is, a lot of parents will describe them as bouncing off the walls, but there's also the version of ADHD where children are inattentive. They may not be very physically active, but from the standpoint of being able to maintain attention to a single thing for a long period of time, they struggle with that. So that's what ADHD, that's how we think about and how ADHD frequently presents in the school setting. Before you go into the other types and explaining those. So with ADHD, it has to be the inattentive aspect in not just school, but other environments as well to achieve that diagnosis. Correct. That is correct. So from a from a school based standpoint, um, we would never determine that a student had ADHD without understanding that those behaviors or those challenges present across multiple settings. Yeah, a young person who only struggles in school would not receive a diagnosis of that sort. 
Okay. Thanks for making sure that we get that clarified from my listeners. All right. So go ahead and explain some of the other diagnoses uh, for my listeners, please. Yeah. So anxiety disorders, I mean, there's such a range of anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little hard to pin it down. It can look like a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but for our students who struggle with anxiety, it can look like excessive worrying to the mm-hmm. point that it interferes with their ability to be successful, whether that be socially, academically, or both. Um, It can look like school refusal. We see that uh, a lot with our younger children and certainly with some of our older students who have very severe anxiety. They may refuse to go to school. Mm -hmm. Um, It can also look like panic attacks, lots of different presentations of anxiety disorders. Okay. And so what about depression? What I mean, how would you define that? And especially when it comes to diagnosing children? Mm-hmm. So depression is a very interesting one when we think about the, the span across the age groups of childhood. Depression, in a, in a kind of mainstream sense, we think of depression as having low mood for a sustained period of time a sense or feeling of hopelessness, a lack of desire, or even ability to carry out everyday activities Mm -hmm. may show up as some uh, social withdrawal. It could be the, the youth who cannot or will not get out of bed, a lack of interest in their friendships and relationships. But an interesting component of depression and how it can present in, some, in younger children, some older, but in younger children, pre- depression sometimes presents as acting out behaviors. We sometimes okay. see aggression in younger children who are depressed. Mm-hmm. So that, that is a that's a piece that we need to look for in particularly our early elementary students. Again, Mm -hmm. sometimes in our older kids as well, but it is not uncommon for depression to present in a younger children with some acting out behaviors. As far as you mentioned those mental, you know, health disorders, such as ADHD, anxiety, depression. Also mentioned the oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, I should say. Is that more mental or behavioral? How would you categorize those? And can you explain those two disorders? Yes. So oppositional defiance disorder and conduct disorder are probably every school-based professional's least favorite mental health diagnoses. Um, They are... From a presentation standpoint, they they are certainly behavioral disorders, but they live in the same diagnostic manual as depression and anxiety and mm-hmm. um, pervasive developmental disorders. So from a medical standpoint, they are considered to be psychological or mm-hmm. mental health disorders. Okay. Their presentation is 100% behavioral. Mm-hmm. And so oppositional defiance disorder is largely characterized just like it sounds there. It is behaviors that are oppositional to what the expectations are, again, of the environment. Mm-hmm. And so for an opposition, a child with a diagnosis of oppositional defiance disorder, you tell them to do something and they may 
flat out refuse to do it. They may respond aggressively to the request. Mm -hmm. Um, Conduct disorder is not diagnosed until the teenage years, typically. Mm -hmm. And the main difference between oppositional defiance disorder and conduct disorder is that conduct disorder requires that the youth has had some sort of law-breaking activities. Mm -hmm possibly have been adjudicated and involved in the court system. So that's generally the primary difference between oppositional defiance disorder and conduct disorder. And so as far as the oppositional defiance disorder, you said that is like the least desirable. So I'm going to ask you, why is that? And then I'm going to transition to Ms. Jones and to get her perspective on it, since she may encounter this on a daily basis or at risk of encountering it. So to be very casual in my response here, the the general perspective that a lot of school-based professionals hold about oppositional defiance disorder is that it is primarily caused by poor parenting. Mm-hmm. And the treatment for oppositional defiance disorder is frequently intensive in-home therapy, which means working to improve how the family systems how the family system functions. And so you may sometimes see a student who has an oppositional defiance disorder diagnosis based on their behaviors in the home. But Mm -hmm. with teachers who do a great job with classroom management, they don't show up with any particular challenges. You know, so it's a, it's a very, it's a, one way that I can put it is oppositional defiance disorder. While it is a mental health diagnosis that carries weight and that has different treatments that are prescribed in a community mental health setting. Mm -hmm. From a school-based standpoint, we would not use oppositional defiance disorder as a reason to provide a student with special education. Like It is not a disorder that gives a student access to specially designed instruction like many other mental health disorders do. Okay. So Ms. Jones, what's your perspective? So In addition to that, I think one of the things we notice with oppositional defiance disorder, ODD, is that, you know, our teachers are working really hard. Most teachers got into the field because they're passionate about children, helping them be successful, or they really want to deliver a certain content. So many of our teachers were professional in the field that they're delivering. And so they're passionate about art or music. And so when they come up to a defiant child or a child with ODD, it can be derailing and it also can impact that relationship. So you have a mm-hmm. teacher who's working with 30 kids, really excited about a lesson, and you have the student who won't sit down, you know, won't follow any directions, intentionally doing the opposite of everything that they're supposed to. And it really weighs on those relationships. Uh, what I find as a counselor is in general, it's not my role to tell any of the students what to do. Mm -hmm. So with counseling, it's a lot of support. It's a lot of advocacy. It's easier for me to build a relationship with ODD students or students presenting with ODD because I'm never really telling them, sit down, do this, do that. Whereas I do find that for our other staff, it can just be very frustrating. Um, And so, you know, staff are human. And so when they're frustrated, it ruins their day, it ruins their relationship. And so I see that as one of the reasons when, when a student presenting with ODD, the staff are frustrated and not necessarily sure how to manage it. 
Okay. So you mentioned about the oppositional defined and the other mental health disorder diagnoses. We're talking about a school environment. And so how do you go about differentiating those disorders from someone that has maybe a learning disability and maybe exhibiting some symptoms that may potentially be thought of as a mental disorder? So I think the main difference between the two of those is Mm -hmm what the needs of the student are in the school environment, what types of support they require in order to be successful at their job as a student. Mm -hmm. And so again, what it means to be successful as a student is generally that I attend school regularly, I am able to learn and make academic progress, and I'm able to meet the behavioral expectations of the environment. Mm -hmm. And so for our students who do not have a learning disability, but are struggling with an emotional or mental health disorder, they may largely need support around meeting the, in a sense, the behavioral expectations of the the environment. They may struggle with friendships. They may struggle to engage with others. They might experience anxiety related to their schoolwork, but are not actually underperforming in in an academic or learning standpoint. Whereas a student whose primary need is a learning disability, for example, they may require specially designed instruction from a special education teacher. They might need extra time. They might need to be retaught in a different way. So it's really a matter of what they need from us that is different than most students in order to be successful in the school environment. And is it possible, Dr. Penn, to follow up on that question, is it possible to have multiple diagnoses within a particular uh, child that's attending school? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see a fair number of students who have needs in multiple areas. Okay. All right. So during this pandemic, Ms. Jones, I wanted to um, ask you In regards to diagnoses during this pandemic that you encountered, has there been an increase in new diagnosis during this pandemic that you've noticed as far as when you encounter students within the academic environment? I think that's a a great question and it's going to be challenging to answer. So I'm going to do my best. Okay. Um, I think what I would say is that there's more suspected diagnoses than than there would be in a typical year. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason I say suspected is similar to what Dr. Penn was saying before, which is it's hard to diagnose someone in one environment. So while the student has been at home for a long time, all of a sudden there's suspected ADHD or suspected anxiety, but then they've started to return to the building and we see those behaviors subside. So it's, it's hard to say yet whether a diagnosis is warranted, but there certainly has been an increase in the symptoms and behaviors related to these disabilities or disorders that we've mentioned. But, um, mm-hmm. but I could just certainly say that I wouldn't expect anyone to be diagnosed in the middle of a crisis. It's just too hard to tell when things return to what students typically see as normal and then seeing if we have residual concerns, residual issues. And we are seeing that. So we have some students who have returned and some of those behaviors are not going away. Those might be students where we're referring to have evaluated and see if um, if we are looking at a new diagnosis, which will help us offer support. But even without a diagnosis, our staff, our, our teachers, 
people are very good at responding to even symptomology. So we're not necessarily waiting for a diagnosis to treat a student who's showing anxiety or showing ADHD, going ahead and and intervening by offering some of our typical interventions uh, while tracking it to see if this is something that's going to be more long-term. Okay. And so Dr. Pan, the same question to you, because you're, you know, you're over the entire district. And from that standpoint, have you noticed or seen an increase in certain diagnosis during this pandemic at all? So no. And mm-hmm. and what what we are concerned about actually is that we are seeing fewer youth in our community accessing mental health services than what we would normally see pre-pandemic. And so what what that looks like is, um, and, and of course, we think this is because we've been or were in a remote learning stance for much of the last 12 months. And the behavioral and emotional needs that we might typically see in the school environment as youth attempt to respond to the demands of the school environment, we don't have those eyes anymore. And so what that means is if a child is struggling, it is solely up to the parent or has been solely up to the parent to understand that what they're seeing may be of concern and might warrant some type of mental health support or a referral to the school counselor. That that has not happened to the extent that it normally would in a regular school year. We we have a robust school-based mental health program in our in our school district. Referrals have gone down dramatically this school year for that program. Likewise for those youth who were already involved in mental health services prior to the pandemic, during the pandemic, their attendance and therapy sessions has gone down dramatically. We have done roughly a quarter of the number of suicide risk assessments that we would do in a normal year, yet we have youth risk behavior survey data that shows that the percentage of youth who are thinking about suicide or experiencing symptoms of depression has gone up since um, from 2017 to 2019. So we know that the mental health needs are there, Mm -hmm. but student or youth access to services appears to have gone down dramatically over the last year. Okay. And are there certain mental health diagnoses you mentioned, I think, for high schoolers, you see more of the conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder diagnosis in that age group. But is there a certain age group where certain mental health disorders are prevalent within certain age ranges? And can you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, I I think... Are at the elementary level, ADHD and oppositional defiance disorder are probably two of the most prevalent diagnoses. When we move into the middle grades and high school, we see a lot more anxiety and depression. The ADHD is pretty steady across all grade levels, okay. but the anxiety and depression will jump in our adolescent years. Okay. And so, Ms. Jones, as a counselor, what are some of the symptoms parents should be looking out for regarding like mental health or behavioral disorders that you may advise them to kind of look out for in their children? So similar to what we were speaking about in the beginning about just changes in behavior or the inability to access the average, what your child is used to doing, I would just say major changes in behavior is something to watch out for. So if they used to play sports with their friends and now they're holed up in their room um, and that's a sudden change, 
and it's not the way they were, that's usually a red flag. Or if quarters one and two, their grades were C average, and now they've plummeted to Fs. Mm -hmm. Um, So any really any big change is something for a parent to look out for. Um, As Dr. Penn said, right around middle school years, students start to go through puberty, we have Mm -hmm. hormone rushes, all of those changes really do impact underlying mental health issues. So if a student might have some anxiety in fifth grade, usually in seventh grade, we see that just exacerbated. Okay. And and oftentimes when the student turns 20, 21, it, it can come back down naturally too. So just being aware that that spike is often related to that hormonal surge and going through puberty. But in general, um, well, I mean, we're, we recommend that parents look for the changes. Uh, we've done mm-hmm. a lot of parent outreach this year and mm-hmm. recordings for parents about uh, screen time addiction as well. So that's just something that we have seen a, a little bit more because it does present sometimes like anxiety and depression. Like the student starts to self-isolate. They really want to watch their um, TV. They want to play their video games. The parent tries to take it away and they're aggressive or they're upset. Um, and so then it starts to, parents start to wonder, am I looking at anxiety? Am I looking at depression? And it mm-hmm. could be this other new thing that's starting to increase, which is just leaning on technology. Like Dr. Penn said, those video games have so much stimuli coming out so fast and it triggers the brain dopamine receptors and students can really get attached to that. And uh, we've seen an increase in that over the pandemic year, just because kids are home, so they have more access to technology. Okay. And Dr. Pan, any additional uh, signs and symptoms that parents or listeners should look out for in their kids? The the only thing I would add is the importance of monitoring children's social media. Okay. I think a, a, a lot of parents struggle with the adolescent's need for privacy versus their need to know and to be able to parent their children and to be able to be responsive to what their needs are. Um, so that that's one piece that I think is is critical is our, our kids do so much communicating over social media and, and it is largely silent. You can't mm-hmm. hear it. And unless you go and look, you can't see it either. And we become aware of a lot of mental health needs and suicidal ideation mm-hmm. through the different things that our youth are sharing via social media. And so I think that that's very important for parents to be aware of. Okay. Thank you for adding that. So that's a great note to make is, you know, checking out their children's social media and, and how that could impact their overall mental health as well. So where should they go to seek evaluation if they exhibit those symptoms. I mean, I know you say that you have a school-based mental health program. You have a wonderful counselors like Ms. Jones available. Where should they go if they feel like their child is exhibiting some of these symptoms and they have concerns? Parents nationally have lots of different options, but I, I would always say if you have a concern, most of our schools across the country will have a counselor, a social worker, a psychologist, if they're lucky, all three, Mm -hmm. any of those professionals are always happy to 
take an appointment with the parent and talk with them about their concerns and then can point them in the right direction for a next steps based on the information that they hear. And that can include community mental health referrals, as well as options for support within the school. Another one of my very favorite resources that is also available nationally is Mental Health America. Mm -hmm. Mental Health America is a national organization that has a website that includes uh, research-based screeners for some of the most common mental health disorders. And I know for us, throughout the pandemic, we've been worried about not only our students, but also our staff. And so Mm -hmm. one thing that I did, I don't know, a while ago now is send out a link to those screeners and encourage our staff, just check in on your own mental health. How are you doing? But likewise, Mental Health America has screeners that are normed for children and adolescents. And so a parent can ask their student to do a screener and to sit down and look at the results together. And those screeners also make recommendations for next steps based on the results. And so, Dr. Penn, you mentioned earlier about some uptick of certain, you know, diagnoses such as suicidal ideation, their concerns with that during this pandemic, depression and symptoms. But I want to mention something that I came across while I was doing research for this. And it was that according to the CDC, during the early stages of the pandemic, April 2020, a proportion of uh, children's mental health they were stating that mental health related ED visits or emergency department visits among all pediatric ED visits increased and remained elevated throughout the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what you were saying. Um, and I think it increased or uh, remained throughout October 2020, I think, from the, the study. And com- and this was compared to 2019. And they said the proportion of mental health related visits for children between the ages of 5 to 11 increased by 20 approximately 24 percent and for the ages 12 to 17 years of age it increased approximately by 31 percent so my question is according to that age range and as far as looking at that uptick when should individuals be concerned where they should seek emergent services for their children and Mm -hmm. then to what according to your recommendations after that what would be kind of the next steps Mm -hmm. so there's two things I want to address I definitely want to address the question you're raising about when should emergency care be sought but Mm -hmm. I also want to highlight that the the data that we're getting about mental health during the pandemic is a little bit challenging to wade through. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about the proportion of ED visits related to mental health going up during the pandemic, I think one of the questions we have to ask is, so the proportion has gone up, but the actual percent or number of visits has not gone up. And I think the reason we're seeing the proportion going up is the physical activities that youth would normally be participating in are not happening during the pandemic. So there was no soccer season. There was no baseball season last year. And so kids are not obtaining the normal types of childhood injuries that are probably most representative of child and adolescent visits to emergency departments, but we still have our mental health or lack thereof every day. So I think there's some question as to why the proportion has gone up, but the overall number of ED visits for mental health has not necessarily gone up. When a child might or a family should consider going to the emergency department is when that youth is presenting as a danger to themselves or to others. 
Mm-hmm. And so that is typically going to look like suicidal behaviors, suicidal ideation, where, well, I would say for a family, any type of suicidal ideation, they might want to pursue a, an ED visit. It can also look like, oh, just behaviors and speech or language that is very concerning, like that is maybe pointing towards a significant loss of contact with reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. And Ms. Jones, what have you seen as far as those particular emergent symptoms and have you encountered it as being a counselor where you needed to have them seek emergency medical services? Well, part of what I want to weigh in on here is that increase that you were talking about. And Dr. Penn, correct me if I say anything wrong. Typically, when we know of a student with suicide ideation, and often the parent is the one who tells us first, they're in the school environment. They come see me in the office and I do a screener or an assessment with them. That would fall at three levels, low, moderate, or high risk. If it's low, we don't suggest emergency services. So we suggest either working with a school counselor, school-based mental health, or setting up with a provider, a consistent person working with the child through coping skills or whatever is giving them those thoughts. Even at the moderate level, sometimes we still don't recommend emergency services. It just depends on how at risk the student is. If there's a history of suicide in the family, those types of things. And then high risk is when we would suggest seeking emergency services. My guess is that when we were remote, a parent heard their student mention suicide ideation. Mm -hmm. There's not a person there. They're not in the school. There's not someone doing that screener. So Mm -hmm. they're taking them immediately to the emergency department. While the student might have actually been low risk or even no risk, uh, meaning that, that what they said was misinterpreted. And so I think there is a buffer when students are in school of having nurses, um, Mm -hmm. school psychologists, and school counselors doing that first level screener and then referring parents to emergency services based on those results. When we're all at home and all online, parents, when they hear anything about suicide as they should, are responding in an emergency response um, Mm -hmm. when maybe that wasn't necessarily warranted. But As Dr. Penn said, anytime a parent feels like their child is a a risk to themselves and they Mm -hmm. don't already have a mental health provider, I think an emergency service visit is is a great idea. If you know that your child has exhibited symptoms of self-harm or talked about suicide, a parent should have a provider for their, their child that they see maybe not every week, but someone that if you become concerned, you can call them and they can tell you go ahead and go to the emergency department or let's just go ahead and have a session tomorrow. But I I definitely recommend if you've never heard your child mention it before, if you have nothing in place and you have no one to turn to, it's not a bad idea to go and have someone assess them and give you, give you some suggestions for next steps. Okay. As far as Another study that I came across when I was looking at the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatric Study, the researchers said that there is a a concern by the researchers in the study mentioned that mental health uh, disorders begin in childhood and, and that it's essential that any mental health issues be identified early and treated because left untreated, they can lead to serious health and emotional problems. And so to you, uh, Dr. Penn, do you agree with that? I I do agree with that. And um, I think while most mental health disorders do present 
initially in childhood, the the question is, to what extent is it impacting the functioning mm-hmm. of the youth? Because um, sometimes I think you may see a student who's got very low level behavioral or emotional needs in the early years that uh-huh. does not rise to the point of school staff or even the parent thinking that there's anything that needs to be done, but just uh, just a noticeable difference in behavioral or emotional presentation. That young person who is very prone to crying or very prone to getting anxious about a test, but are able to persevere and and perform successfully. But that, as Amanda pointed out earlier, as we move into adolescence, most commonly, Mm -hmm. when those hormonal changes start to um, come into play, that is most likely when we see the behavioral or emotional needs begin to increase. And so, yes, early, early identification is absolutely critical because I think when we see what I would add though, is that identification is one thing Uh Uh, parents agreeing to seek and receive treatment, whether that be community-based treatment or school-based services is an entirely different thing. The stigma that exists in among the public members of the public for mental health is probably one of our greatest challenges. Of all of the students that the, our school district refers for school-based mental health services, only about 50% actually ever get to the point of beginning to receive treatment. And that is largely based in parents not signing the paperwork that is needed in order for children to begin receiving services. So identification that there might be a need or a problem. Mm-hmm. I think we are pretty good at that, but being able to get folks to pursue treatment in the community or services in the school is, is a whole different conversation. Okay. So with that being said, I want to just ask you about that since you brought it up because there is stigma with mental health. You would think it would be easier for children because parents are definitely want their children to be healthy, but you see it based on what you're saying now is it's even apparent in parents being reluctant to sign a paper for them to get help and assistance. So what are you all doing to help alleviate that stigma that's associated with seeking medical services within the school-based system or getting them to community resources outside of the uh, school environment. Mm-hmm. Amanda, do you want to jump in on that one yeah. first? Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, being hesitant to seek treatment for mental health, as we said, is due to a fear that people will be judged or something's wrong. Um, and so a lot of times normalizing is, is a strategy that I use and just trying to help our parents understand that we, we have many children, as Dr. Penn already said, struggling with anxiety, ADHD, depression. And when parents hear that, they're often more willing to participate in treatment. But the other piece is that early intervention is key to making improvements. And so understanding that a child exhibiting anxiety in the fifth grade and the sixth grade who gets early intervention from school-based mental health or mm-hmm. outside mental health, teaching this, the child how to change their thoughts, which can change their behaviors, change their feelings, and understanding this isn't a, a lifelong, necessarily a lifelong struggle. But as you said, Dr. Dion, if you don't intervene, if you don't 
provide support, then it could become exacerbated. And once those thoughts are ingrained, once the person is not used to and doesn't have the coping skills, you'll see the anxiety increase. And then in adulthood, there's the attempt to self-medicate or relying on maybe unhealthy coping skills to try to manage that anxiety or that depression. And so I guess what I would say to parents is, you know, it's a great opportunity. If someone at a school or a staff member tells you like, look, I'm seeing this, I think we should intervene. It's really a great opportunity for you to help your child at a young age, potentially put in supports to help them be successful with that mental health disorder or disability to the point where it might not present at all. But I I do think it's a fear. I mean, I'm a parent and um, it's just challenging for someone to say like, you know, I'm noticing something about your child and it's hard not to hear it as, oh, something's wrong, Mm -hmm. Um, something wrong with my child. And then, and then you just want to deny it, you know, like, no, no, they're fine. (laughs) And I I think that's what happens. Um, And so, you know, my, my son is in speech therapy right now. And I think part of it is, is just recognizing like, well, this is a great opportunity to intervene at a young age and give him the tools to be successful and not create a long-term challenge for my child. So that that's just kind of a little bit of personal um, experience along with what I'm, what I've done as a counselor in a school to help parents. We've talked about like how this is important to diagnose early and get management. So what are some of the treatments that are available that you offer, Dr. Penn, within the school system for your students? And then I'll kind of transition over to Ms. Jones and how her role in that as well as far as the, the help in the management and treatment of those students within that environment. So what type of services and treatments do you offer within your school-based program? As in all great medical models, we start with prevention, right? And so um, we just starting this school year actually are implementing social and emotional skills-based instruction for all of our students in grades K through eight. And then in the coming school year, we will add it for our students in grades nine through 12. And so there we are focusing on what Ms. Jones alluded to around um, pro-social skills. So what are those social and emotional skills that a person, not just young people, but any person needs in order to be successful in their lives. And so we're focusing on things like self-management, self-awareness, social awareness. Okay. And so all kids get access to instruction in those areas. And hopefully we see that integrated across their language arts, their math, social studies, science, and other elective courses as well. The other thing that we recently started doing for all students that is is becoming more and more common nationally is conducting social and emotional screening of all students. And in that regard, we're using a screening tool to hear directly from students about their perception of their social and emotional skills and needs, as well as their experience in the school environment? Like how is the school climate working for you? And tell us about your relationship with your teachers and are they meeting your emotional and academic support 
needs. We can use that information not only to inform what we do for all students through classroom level instruction and our counselors going in and providing lessons for students, but we can also look at individual students to identify those whose perception of their social and emotional skills indicates that they have needs. Using a screening tool like that allows us not only to know who the students are who've got acting out behaviors, those are obvious. We find that through their classroom behaviors, but screening for social and emotional skills allows us to identify the students who have more of the internalizing behavior. So you heard Mm -hmm. me talk about anxiety and depression as some of the most common diagnoses that parents bring to us, but those are not always easy to see in the school environment. Okay, But with our SEL screening tools, we're actually able to get a better gauge of who students are who may have a low perception of self or maybe struggling with other more internalizing mental health disorders. From there, we provide a range of group and individual research-based interventions in our schools. So there are interventions that are available that are primarily grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Some of them are evidence-based to support youth who are struggling with anxiety or depression. Some of them focus on building behavioral and academic support skills that youth need in order to be successful. So Amanda might run a group with students focused on goal setting and planning an organization. Those are critical skills that a student with ADHD might struggle with. Mm -hmm. And if they don't learn how to navigate organization effectively, not only are they going to struggle academically, but when they get to the workplace, they're going to struggle there as well. So we've got things like that available for a full range of behavioral and emotional needs. And then you've heard me mention, we do have our school-based mental health program, which um, allows students to receive long-term treatment from a licensed mental health clinician on the school campus, but by a provider who works for a mental health agency. So we've got that. And then we have a some other more intensive support that are integrated into some of our alternative school programs, where maybe every student in the building gets group counseling for free. Every student in the building has access to individual therapy. So there's quite a range of services available. And of course, We also support families by making referrals to community-based services if we don't have something that um, can meet their needs. Okay. And as far as the therapy that you mentioned, I want to get Ms. Jones' perspective on that of, you know, what is your role and as far as providing services, Dr. Penn just mentioned that you assist with groups, in particular management of certain diagnoses. So what is your role? And just kind of go into detail about uh, what types of therapies that are available for students. Thank you. And I, what I would say, too, is what Dr. Penn brought up about our social and emotional learning or SEL class. This past year was the first edition of that course. Mm-hmm. Um, So all of our students every day this year had an additional course that was 45 minutes long where we had a curriculum that our teachers followed to teach students social and emotional skills. And it is one of the most amazing, proudest things I've ever seen, just because as a school counselor and having done this now for seven years, Uh the first six years, I felt charged with teaching 300 to 500 kids, all of their social emotional skills 
somehow between classes, wow. um, which just seems, you know, I mean, it's difficult, <laughs> but now we have this entire course where all of our teachers are participating, but students are able to work in groups together um, and partners and just talk through coping skills, social skills, organization, all of the things that Dr. Penn brought up. And mm-hmm. it's such an incredible addition to the curriculum that it it makes my role more of, well, more possible, but also instead of always reacting and running around the school trying to provide this for all my students, this is an ongoing daily structure where I then can pull smaller groups and work with students who are struggling in one specific area. And so my time is just better spent. And so for the groups, like you mentioned, our team does a needs assessment each year. And with that data, we determine what um, what chunks or what groups are needed. And so recently we've run groups on motivation, organization, and emotion regulation. Those are the three groups that we run. We have Um, three counselors, but we also have a 504 counselor who helps us a lot with the paperwork and some of those diagnosed students like you were talking about. And so each of us will run a group or several groups a week with about 20% of our student body who needs that additional support on top of the support they're each getting every day in that 45 minutes. And then outside of those groups, we sub- we have students who need even more support. And so we call that our intensive group. Mm-hmm. And so those students will get some one-on-one counseling from their school counselor in addition to their group, in addition to their daily SEL course. And so, um, I mean, it's just the best model I've ever seen in my seven years. I, I really do feel like we're we're finally structured to reach mm-hmm. all the kids instead of just responding to those where it's obvious there's a problem. And I always I struggled to sleep at night knowing there were kids who were falling through the cracks and weren't getting any intervention. Now I feel like they are all getting lessons, support, and and someone just asking them on a daily basis, you know, how are you feeling today? Um, and that was something that wasn't happening before. So it's very exciting. Yeah, I think that is such an awesome idea, social and emotional learning courses for your students. And I just want to ask, so from your perspective, Dr. Penn, you're over a major school district. And for my listeners who may not live in this state, does every school district offer such services as for as school-based mental health or what is available or the basics that are available to most students across the U.S.? Sure. Yeah. So nationally, there is quite a wide range of variability of what is available. Just as an example, in my bio, you mentioned I started my career in California. We only had school counselors at the high school level in the district Mm -hmm. where I was working. And so there would not be an Amanda Jones in that school district. It, It varies quite a bit state to state as far as what the baseline level of social and emotional supports for students is. Okay. But but what I what I can say is that the vast majority of schools and school districts do have access to a school psychologist. And having access to school counselors is becoming more the norm. The roles that they play can vary quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but most districts do at least offer minimal school psychological services and some degree of school counseling. Um, The availability of school social workers seems to be 
probably the thing that is the most variable from state to state. And, and social-emotional learning has become a bit of a movement from a national standpoint where we see, I think almost half of all states have social and emotional learning standards and expectations at this point in time, and more and more are coming on board every year. That said, it's often an unfunded mandate, so districts are left to find different ways to fund their social and emotional supports. Okay. So I had another question as well, and that according to the the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatric Study, they mentioned that schools are the de de facto mental health system for many children and adolescents. I see you nodding your head, so you must agree. And it it provides mental health services to at least 57% of adolescents who need care. And so since I'm a big advocate in looking at disparities within populations, from your standpoint, they mentioned some disparities in that the school closures may be especially disruptive for children from lower income families who are disproportionately likely to receive mental health services exclusively from schools. So I want to know, like, from your standpoint, you all are mostly virtual now, and I think we're slowly transitioning back to in-person learning. But I want to get your perspective of how are you addressing these disparities within the system and kind of going from there of what can we learn from how this pandemic is pretty much shined more of a light, I should say, on that and how we can go from there. Mm hmm. I think I would say the pandemic has the primary barrier that the pandemic has created is really around our ability to access students. So in our district at this point in time, we are back to attending in person four days a week and we'll be at five days next week. Um, but we still have a relatively large percentage of families who have chosen to remain remote through the end of the school year. But what it, what the remote learning environment meant was that Miss Jones cannot walk down the hallway and notice that a student's affect is off from what it normally is and, and pull that student to check in with them. She can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as we've seen all across the country, most cameras are off on Zoom. So even if she wanted to check in on students through their, their online classes, she's not going to see them most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so our ability to have a physical connection with a student is often where we are able to identify that there may be an issue that warrants attention. And that's from the teacher standpoint, as well as our counselors and administrators. So that's been lost during remote learning. Okay. Um, so, but what school districts, as far as the 57% of youth receiving their mental health services at school, that includes the types of services that Ms. Jones referenced momentary, uh, a few moments ago, like mm -hmm. the groups that she described, as well as individual counseling. Every last thing that she just described, other than the 45 minutes in the classroom, mm -hmm. requires parent permission. So we mm -hmm. go back to that question of stigma and whether or not a parent is willing to allow their student to participate in group counseling or individual counseling from a member of the school team. In regards to what it is that we are able to do to address some of the disparities in mental health treatment... You know, one of the, the reasons that a lot of youth do not receive the longer term 
mental health treatment that they might need from a licensed clinician is financial. So we've got many students who have private insurance that includes massive deductibles or co-pays for what might be a weekly mental health therapy session. We have other youth in our community who are uninsured for whatever reason, whether it be that their family just has not been able to purchase insurance or they're undocumented and therefore ineligible for Medicaid or other public insurance programs. And so what we've been able to do in our community is um, use various types of federal and grant funding to actually Mm -hmm. pay for the mental health treatment that is provided by community-based mental health providers who are working in our schools. And so we've, over the course of the last, I'd say, five years, probably invested close to $300,000, if not more, in paying for treatment for youth who are uninsured or underinsured and therefore unable to afford the cost of long-term mental health treatment. Okay. And as far as those students, I know like during this pandemic, you guys had to be a little bit more creative in how you reached those students. So, I mean, was it just through Zoom with the pandemic? I don't know if you you all tried to arrange home visits. What type of things that you were able to come up with as far as being able to support these students, as well as since no one in this country during our lifetime have experienced being in a pandemic. Did you end up collaborating with other school districts and what they were doing? Well, speaking from our school first, and then train, if you want to talk about the district, I'm sure you know more than what we did. Really, we used any and every means possible. So everything you suggested and beyond I tried to join as many classes as I could. And the benefit of Zoom is teachers can create breakout rooms. And so this is the first year where every teacher had my cell phone number. (laughs) And it was every day we're texting like breakout room with so-and-so because, you know, you don't want to get in the class and say, put me in a breakout room with this kid because you don't want to make them uncomfortable. Right. Stigma. Correct. Yeah. Right. So teachers would just, you know, I would show up and then they would either read my text and then put me in a room. And, um, you know, I thought the students did a good job of even if their camera was off during class, when they got in a breakout room, they would turn it on and Mm -hmm. they would have a conversation with me. And I would be able to discuss, you know, like, why aren't you, why isn't your camera on during class? Why aren't you participating? And just find out if there was anything I could do to help them feel more comfortable participating in class. But that really was the main Um, driving goal was trying to get kids to participate in class. We actually found that more kids attended the SEL class, the social and emotional learning class, where there's no homework, there's no There's no real requirements because they enjoyed that time. We really structured our lessons to be more of like fun, positive discussions. And so teachers would tell us, well, so-and-so comes to SEL, but they don't come to math. And so I was actually able to reach a lot of kids during that time. But the barriers remain true. If a parent doesn't want their child to participate, if the child doesn't want to participate, for whatever reason, it does make mm-hmm. it hard to provide those services. It's similar to an adult. You know, everyone really has to be on board to wanting that support for it to be super effective, but it is very effective, which is why I love my job. Students who participate in mental health support, you can see growth. They, they really do enjoy it. And and it goes 
it goes well. But a lot of our collaboration, we did collaborate with other schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so our middle school met with another middle school, actually, I'm sorry, three middle schools. We would have a weekly meeting trying to talk about how we can reach students. We did a few home visits because of COVID. I personally wanted to make sure no one felt uncomfortable. So I wouldn't go to a home visit unannounced for this type of reason. So if I was speaking with the parent and we were texting and they said, yes, you know, please come by. I would meet with a student outside and we would talk for a little bit. But yeah, really any and every means. I mean, students, I was talking to students on their cell phone during the school day because that was the only way I could get in touch with them. And um, it, it actually went better than I thought. Mm-hmm. But it is, the lacking was what Dr. Penn already mentioned, which is noticing a child in distress in a school and then you can just talk to them. That was very hard remotely. We we wouldn't know. They wouldn't log on to class because they didn't feel good. So how would we know that they were home crying? So that, that was kind of the harder part. Social media, though, like Dr. Penn said, if a parent noticed they posted something on social media and then would text me, then I would know. So that parent involvement is crucial. It really did feel like a big team effort to provide mental health this year. So. Okay, great. I wanted to ask you, Ms. Jones, as well, is that do certain types of therapies that you've noticed work for certain type of diagnosis, such as like anxiety, depression, ADHD? And also, do you all work in conjunction? Let's say they may be seeing mental health physician outside of the school environment as far as coordinating uh, care for those students. So um, to answer your question about what type of theories and interventions that we use, Mm -hmm. as a school counselor, our time is always limited. So I tend to lean on solution-focused brief therapy and um, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, like Dr. Penn mentioned, because um, they're highly effective research-based theories and interventions, and they also work well for students and across the board. So can help with anxiety, depression, ADHD, Those are all very brief therapeutic methods that you can use with students in a school setting. Now, sometimes Mm when um, I refer a student to outside of school therapy, then there may be additional interventions that are used. And then, like you said, we do a release form from the parent for me to be able to communicate with that provider. So if the student is seeing someone weekly or even twice a week, if it's really intensive therapy, I like to have a conversation with that person so I know what methods they're using. So if the student has a panic attack in the school building, I'm kind of aligning what I do with what they're already learning outside of the school life. If the person who's working with them is using DBT, I don't want to do a whole different thing and confuse the child in the middle of a panic attack. So that communication is key. Again, it kind of goes back to that team approach that I really, truly do believe it takes a village of people. And if everyone works together in the best interest of a child, the child will be the most successful. So uh, Dr. Penn, I had a quick question for you in regards to like the students that not only receive the services within your school district, let's say they are getting those services outside of the the school environment. As far as treatment, is there certain things that you've noticed in regards to medications plus therapy versus, you know, therapy alone versus medication alone benefiting certain diagnoses? What we know is that 
if if a child needs medication, typically medication and therapy are going to be the most effective producer of good results for them. Anyone who's been a school-based practitioner has seen the student who we know is taking medication because maybe they take it at school or we've been working with the family and therefore we have access to that information. But, you know, we we often don't know whether or not the medication is being administered regularly, whether or not the medication is effective. But when the student also has therapy or a a long-term mental health treatment provider, we are at least able to communicate with that person on a regular basis to provide them with updates about what we're seeing in school, ask questions like Amanda talked about as far as what the methods are that they're using and things like that so that we can partner As a school district and individual schools and practitioners, we have no false belief that we can do this alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We, at the minimum, need the parents involved in working with us. And when we can partner with the treatment providers, it is, you'll see better outcomes on all sides. Excellent. And so I want to ask a couple of more questions. I want to get Ms. Jones' perspective on this. I know that a lot of students that may be in abusive environments consider school as a safe haven. So my question to you, since the pandemic, we were a lot of people were at home doing virtual learning. Were you able to pick up on more abusive home environment situations? So what's different is that you, you similar to the noticing the child who's sad Mm -hmm. we don't have the child who accidentally told you know the Spanish teacher that they were hit the night before and so Mm -hmm. that's a more typical thing that we hear in the school or the child who says I'm afraid to go home today Mm -hmm. those are the kind of the like oh let's go ahead and make a report or a call so we haven't had that this year Mm -hmm. Um, But what we have had is more notice of neglect cases. So cases where the child is not showing up to any classes and we've dropped off a Chromebook at their house and Mm -hmm. we've given them a hotspot and they're still not attending and the parents aren't responding to emails. Some of those cases have been a little bit different where Mm -hmm. we have actually made reports of neglect that... I I think in a normal year, we wouldn't because the child gets on the bus and comes to school and goes home. um, If they change their clothes and they take a shower, we have no idea. But this time we have actually noticed more of of parents who aren't involved in their child's life at all. So with the online learning and the parents not involved at all, Mm -hmm. a child is not logging on to go to school. So it's just a very clear red flag of like, okay, this 11 or 10 year old might be parenting themselves, which Mm -hmm. is a call we've made more frequently this year. Okay. Okay. Also during this pandemic, we have been dealing with a lot of social unrest related to racial inequality in this country. And I wanted to know how the school district in general has been addressing that. And has that from your standpoint, Ms. Jones, have you noticed anything from the students that you've encountered regarding this issue about addressing racial inequality in this country and how these protests throughout the past year have impacted the mental health of uh, uh, our children in the school district and across the U.S. Well, I first I'll say I've been very impressed by our superintendent, but 
he has addressed it head on at each moment throughout the year with staff emails, parent emails, and just bringing awareness to the fact that as a district, we're recognizing what's going on. We're not going to be silent about inequalities. We are going to talk about it with our students and then also providing resources. Along with that, Dr. Penn has followed those that outreach up with outreach to our, uh, our wellness group. So being in charge of student wellness, she always sends out, you know, here's some resources for discussing what's going on with some of the inequalities, bullying we've seen in the schools, um, online. And so it's given us as school counselors and school base the opportunity to do the same thing. So during our social and emotional learning classes, we've used those resources. When the protests started last spring, we were full remote and we were not meeting. We didn't have a social and emotional learning class. So students were going to one hour of math and one hour of reading a day. And so what we did instead at that time was a lot of parent outreach. You know, here are resources for you and your children to talk about the protests that are going on. And so this year, though, with the social and emotional learning class, we've been able to do a lot more with the protests and the inequalities that are you know, coming up to the surface and are more obvious to everyone at this time. And it's a really great time to involve students in it because it's, they know about it, they're seeing it, they want to know what they can do to make a difference. And then we've also allowed our students to participate. And so I think that's been big for our school. Um, We kind of bring up the facts about what's going on, and then we allow them to create student videos, student presentations, and then we put them together and put them back out to the school. So students are getting a a chance to share their voice. And I think that it's just becoming a collaborative experience for everyone. So I'm just very appreciative of our district, everything that they've done to bring everyone's awareness to it. Excellent. And Dr. Payne, would you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, what what I would add is that, so as a district, one of the things that we have taken up is a district-wide book study for all district leaders, including school principals. This school year, we have just wrapped up reading How to Be an Anti-Racist, and we are simultaneously bringing to bear the question of how do we examine our practices around race, power, and bias such that we are actively working to break down the systemic racism that is built into our system and that therefore we are all a part of perpetuating. From the student standpoint, so Amanda talked about social and emotional learning, and I I mentioned that some of the critical components of SEL are social awareness, Mm -hmm self-awareness, and self-management, right? And when you combine those three, that is almost what needs to be talked about, thought about from the standpoint of addressing issues of racial inequality and social justice. Our high school students have been instrumental in ensuring that the adults in the district and in their high schools understand that they expect us to acknowledge and respond to these issues in our community. And so we, this school year for social and emotional learning at the high school, provided lessons and content that focused on social and racial justice for our high school students to talk through 
weekly in their schools. And their feedback was some of the lessons that you provided on other social and emotional content, eh, but these these lessons on social justice are important and we love them and we want more of it. Their chief complaint, and they might be right, is that our staff don't seem as ready for it as they are. Mm, okay. So what are you doing, I guess, as far as the staff to get to the point of where the the students and the, the parents are as far as getting them prepared? Yeah, I mean, so there's two different pieces to it. There's being ready and able to talk about it, which involves first and foremost self-awareness, right? Like I have right. to understand what what it means to be, for me, a Black woman working in K-12 education and what, how that shows up and how that affects my experience compared to other people's. And for Amanda, that means she has to understand what it means to be a white woman showing up in public education K-12 and what the history there is and how her experience might be different than other people's experiences. And so there's that self-awareness piece that is critical to being able to engage in a conversation with especially our adolescents, but some of our elementary kids are ready for it too. So that's a part of what we're, we in our department have embarked on a few different book studies. I think book studies end up being a, a way to raise awareness and promote examination of self and in a way that can feel less intimidating sometimes than some of the other options that we have available. We've got a great partnership in our community with a group called Race Matters for Juvenile Justice mm -hmm. that has some fantastic workshops that support you in examining the role that race has played in the society that we're all a part of. And I'll tell you, that's a hard workshop. Mm -hmm. I, um, I did it some years ago. And, but it, it forces you to really look at and just internalize, in a sense, how big a factor race in America is in everything that we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so th those are some of the things that we're doing. But, but again, it, 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 for our day-to-day -day work as a district, as a department, it is critical that we are able to examine our practices and how our practices might disproportionately affect positively or negatively mm -hmm. youth and families from different racial groups primarily, but also different economic groups. As an example, oh, this pandemic, we learned very quickly that many of our Black and Brown families did not have access to truly high-speed internet. They might've had a phone where they could access the internet, but they didn't have high-speed internet in their homes. Mm -hmm. And so if I, Amanda happens to work at one of our more affluent schools, mm -hmm. but we've got lots of schools who where 90% of students are economically disadvantaged. So we had to own that we needed to find millions of dollars to buy hotspots so that every student had an equal opportunity to access their instruction. So there are decisions that we make as a system mm -hmm. that can advantage or disadvantage different populations of students. And, and that is a big part of the work that we've got to do is to ask ourselves the question of, are we creating, sustaining, or eliminating inequities in our schools? Excellent. Thank you so much for providing that, that information. And last, 
Before we wrap up, this is the last question for this episode. I, I really appreciate you going into so much detail and providing uh, information for my listeners. I just want to wrap up and ask, what are some of the things that parents should be doing as far as conversations that they should be having with their children or behaviors that they should be exhibiting to help mitigate some of the, the mental health challenges that they may have to deal with and what are some resources that are available that they should check out? I know Dr. Penn had mentioned Mental Health America. So I'll start off with you, Ms. Jones. So as far as what conversations to have, I do find that students are usually more prepared for conversations than adults are. And so a, a lot of the movements, a lot of the changes, and, and we know this generationally, big changes are usually brought on by young people. They see something and they want it changed. And the people who have been around for a long time are resistant. So I think for parents just being open to conversations with their children, whatever they may be, even if it's to say to your child, like, this is a really interesting conversation you've brought up. Let me do a little bit of research and then let's talk more about it. But I also think parents can bring the conversation to their child, just have to be prepared for those answers to be surprising. And again, you can put a pin in it like, wow, I just wasn't expecting that response from you. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to have to think a little bit more about, about it before we talk more. But what I notice when kids come to me and they've got something weighing on their shoulders, they want their parents to know about it. And they're afraid that their parent is going to judge them. So mm -hmm. We say all the time, you know, it's confidential student to counselor and you tell me what you're talking about. But then when we get to the end of the conversation and I say, would you like me to share this with your parent? Like I can be the one to tell them They almost 90% of the time say, yes, please tell them. I want them to know this. So mm -hmm. I think most of our kids want to feel more bonded with their parents, want their parents to know more about them. And so I guess as far as what conversations, all of them, just br bring up anything and everything um, okay. and, and talk about it. So excellent. All right, Dr. Penn. I, I love that answer, Amanda, that what conversations, all of them. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And the earlier, the better, because if you don't start talking until they're in middle school, it's, it's going to be a, a, a pretty steep hill to climb. What I would add is that one of the things that parents can do to prevent or possibly mitigate the impact of mental health challenges is ensure that as they are raising their children, that they are teaching them healthy coping skills mm -hmm. and also exposing them to a broad range of activities that can be outlets. It is tragic to me the number of young people, but especially girls who are never exposed to sports and physical activity, mm. which is one of the easiest, freest to engage in healthy coping strategies, like to be able to exercise or go for a run or go mm -hmm. for a walk or lift weights at the gym. It's ensuring that our kids have outlets that go beyond other people, right? So like the pandemic, we learned about isolation, right? A lot of our kids didn't even have time to get their friends' phone numbers or, or Instagram handles before we went remote, right? right? And so they were left feeling isolated 
and their friends was their primary outlet. And so ensuring that our kids have access to and understand the broad range of healthy coping strategies that they can use when they encounter difficulty is so important. And then the other piece I would add is that parents modeling what they want to see is also of critical importance. We did some work with high school students a few years back. Uh, We pulled about 100 or maybe 200 high school students from public, private, and charter schools all over the community. And we asked them a set of five or six questions. And one of the questions was, what do you need from your parents that you're not getting? And the high school kids said, I need my parents to put their cell phone down and look at me and talk to me. And it's funny because we tell our kids all the time, get off your phone, get off your phone, get off your phone. But we are on our phones too. Mm-hmm. And and so modeling what it is that we want to see from them, I think, is of paramount importance as well. You asked about resources. Mm-hmm. I did talk about Mental Health America, which is one I, I strongly recommend that people take a look at, especially if they just want to check in on their own wellness or their, or their, their kids' wellness. Mm-hmm. I, I will always say... Go to your school. There are a lot of parents who feel like um, they need to create a deep separation between home and school. Like this is our business and Mm -hmm. that's not the school's business. But when parents need support or have questions or concerns, if they go to the school and just say, here's what I think is going on, or here's what I'm concerned about, nine times out of 10, your school's counselor, social worker, psychologist is going to be able to help you get the need met that you're, you're concerned about. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Penn and Ms. Jones for joining me for this episode. You all have provided a wealth of knowledge for my listeners. And just thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule. So for my listeners, if you have found this information to be helpful, please leave a five-star review on your streaming platform of choice. I'll definitely make sure that I put in the show notes, the uh, resources that Dr. Penn and Ms. Jones uh, mentioned during this episode so that you can have access to that. So that will be in the show show notes. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please feel free to share with your friends and family. With that being said, be safe. This is your host, Dr. Dion. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.